Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a Savage Approach Personal Finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, strong and powerful David Keller. David, are you ready to do this? I'm ready to go, George. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Let's do this. David is the president and chief strategist at Sierra Alpha Research. He is a CMT, a featured contributor for the stockcharts.com, where he authors a blog called The Mindful Investor. I'm excited to have you on. David, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work. And why you do what you do? Sure. So, um, you know, my my role now. I live in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, what basically my my firm is called Sierra Alpha Research, and I work with institutional investors and financial advisors, really to to help bring more structure and more um, discipline to their investment process. So I do that through really two main lenses. One is through behavioral finance, so understanding you know all the sort of things happening in our head that cause us to make a lot of times, unfortunately, negative or improper decisions with, uh, with our investments, with our money. Uh, and then the, the second tool is, uh, is technical analysis, which is really doing more statistical analysis of markets and trying to quantify investor behavior. So taking all the buy and sell decisions, all the fear and greed and trying to turn it into something that you can, uh, that you can quantify, that you can track and that you can anticipate. Um, and so my, my background before that, I was at Fidelity Investments for uh, just under nine years in Boston, and I was a director of research there. So I ran two of the research teams, and one of those was the technical research team. So worked with all the equity mutual fund managers, um, identifying buy and sell decisions based on you know technical quantitative behavioral inputs and helping them uh, you know outperform as, as much as possible and minimize risk. Uh, and then before that, I was in uh, in New York City at Bloomberg, which is where I started in the industry. And I, I actually studied music and psychology as an undergraduate, so I had a very non traditional background. Nice. But oh yeah, but if you think about it, it 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 actually makes a lot of sense. I didn't realize it for years, but psychology has been great. It's been great as a manager of uh, of employees. To I mean, I've used that every day uh, in that role. But but also just understand your your goal as an investor is to anticipate what other investors are thinking and feeling and what's driving their decisions. And so it's a very psychological discipline for me. Uh, and then music is incredibly mathematical, and the markets uh, are as well. So the mathematical nature of that really. Um, you know, it was, it was a great parallel for what I'm able to do with understanding uh, stock market movements. So that that's sort of my background. That's how I got to where I am. Nice. I love. Uh, I always love talking about behavioral investing because our brains serve us so well in so many different ways and so poorly in so many others. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, and it's funny. I think you know one of the the challenges with behavioral finance as a discipline. I mean, it's really an academic discipline, to be honest, uh, but it's it's bringing to light a lot of the things that an investor would, would understand. I mean, it, it just makes sense when you hear some of the things we do, but it doesn't have to be all negative. So it's not about all the bad decisions we make, even though granted there are many of those things because we're wired to, you know, to make decisions certain ways, which, which often as investors does not serve us well. But also there's a, there's a positive. There are things that humans actually do very well. And, and so what I try to do with my clients is help minimize some of those negative, uh, you know, biases and, and maximize what we are good at, which is identifying relationships and thinking of the bigger picture, thinking more holistically, having empathy. And those all do service as investors. You just have to apply them in a, in a consistent way. Nice. So I'd like to, if, if you would, just kind of take us through a couple of examples of those, those things that do service well, of identifying relationships. Sure. So, um, you know, <clears throat> there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about 
the automation of markets, things like robo advisors and, you know, active versus passive management. And, you know, what's the role of a human in the financial markets, uh, you know, for uh, on the professional side, if all of it can be automated. And, and my response to that or the way I would think about it is there are certain things that computers actually do very, very well. Uh, and there are certain things that computers don't do well. And that's where humans actually can work together with a computer and, and, and have maximum uh, you know, success rate. And one of my, uh, one of my, my peers, I, I would say mentors more than peers, uh, Andrew Lowe, who's a professor at MIT and has done an incredible work on behavioral finance and investor psychology and, and technical analysis. And, and in his presentation, he always brings up a, uh, a picture and he says, all right, I'm going to bring up a picture. And as soon as you recognize what this picture is, raise your hand. And the picture pops up and it's a picture of a squirrel. And of course, the entire room raises their hand like obviously it's a squirrel. And he says, all right, do you know how hard it is to teach a computer that that's a squirrel and then show them some other squirrels and have them understand that that's it. And that's a really good illustration of where there, there's an advantage and a disadvantage, uh, you know, through automation, right? So, you know, computer can crunch data and can manipulate data and can, you know, quantify things much better than you and I could and much more efficiently. And they don't need coffee breaks and don't have emotional baggage or anything like that. But at the same time, it takes a human to think creatively to figure out what that computer needs to be doing and what a model input needs to look like and how to prepare the computer to, you know, to do things effectively. And then at the, at the end of that, it's what do you do with that data? And, um, and, and so the, the second example I would tell you is, is, uh, in, in terms of what humans are actually wired to do very well is empathy and, and empathy, if you're not familiar, is just being able to identify with others, put you, put yourself in their shoes and, and, and have something resonate with both of you. And if you think about the role of the financial advisor, you know, for years it was a financial advisor took someone's uh, money and then, you know, put it in, in different assets and, you know, and, and just decided where to put things from an investment perspective. And computers can do that simplistic kind of asset allocation very, very well, very efficiently. Um, and there, there are plenty of models that can do it. But here's the problem. Let's say the market goes down 10, 15, 20 percent and your, 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 your little, uh, you know, your nest egg starts shrinking. You do not want to sit in front of a computer screen and have it tell you you lost 20 percent of your money. Have a nice day. You know, right. you need someone to actually, re you know, identify with you and say, OK, listen, here's what happens when the market does this. And here's what happened the last time. And here's how you need to think about it. And here's how you need to adapt your thinking. And it's going to be OK. And I've seen this before. And that sort of empathy, that sort of connection with other people to help them understand their money in a, in a meaningful and an emotional, positive way um, is, a, is a very important role. So I think the role of the advisor is actually going to be evolving more and more from an investor to really more of a of a therapist or a coach or something, you know, it's a different different way of thinking about it, which is just helping people understand how the markets work and how their money is related to it. So those are some examples. I mean, there are plenty of things that humans actually do very well. And, uh, and, and so that's where I, where I hope to point people more than, more than not. Got it. Well, I appreciate that very much. And there's actually a discipline, which I'm sure you're well aware of, of this financial therapy. It's a whole, uh, it's a whole designation that's, that's probably been around for a little while, but I think it's becoming more popular these days for all the reasons you just described. So um, I, I think that, that when, when I look at the market today and maybe it's just, Maybe it's there's more news media. Who knows? But it seems like there's more, more volatility. And you've obviously been an expert and been researching and studying and working with the market for for a long time. Have the actual fundamentals of the market changed as of late? 
Really, really good question. And I think, you know, anyone that's invested for a period of time, I mean, it, it, it certainly feels like that's the case, right? And and you can you can think of a lot of ways that, that the markets feel different. You know, I would say a lot of people say there's more of a time compression. So things that could have taken, you know, weeks or months to evolve a theme, for example, now can take, you know, hours to days just because things happen more quickly. Um, I think on different time frames, you'll feel the evolution of the market um, more differently, right? So especially on the short term environment. So if you've ever tried to day trade a market or you ever, you know, have an intraday tried to, you know, go in and out of a position that feels very different now than it did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And there are so many reasons for that. I mean, I, you know, the, um, you know, plenty of automation, a lot of quantitative inputs, algorithmic trading that all have impacted how the markets move in the short term. Um, you know, you could argue much more efficiently than they had before. Um, also, decimalization. And, you know, th- if you think stocks used to used to trade on eights and now they trade, you know, sub pennies. Right. Which means that, um, you know, there are much smaller increments for uh, for things to trade, which means there there's opportunity for a lot more uh, different price points and different movements. There's also the opportunity for a lot more efficiency, because instead of just jumping you know, uh, you know, 12 and a half cents at a clip, things can really, you know, have these tiny, tiny incremental changes as, you know, high frequency traders go back and forth and trade huge volume. So, you know, on the short term, you know, people that I've never really been a a short term trader, but I've worked with many of them and they have all told me that the market just feels very different than it did uh, years ago. I would say for longer term investors, you know, that efficiency, that that um, that the volatility, the you know, the movement in the short term, I think, is, is overall a net positive for investors because I think that means there's plenty of liquidity, meaning when you want to do something with your money and put a position on or take it off, there's plenty of opportunity to do so. It's not difficult to do that for the most part. Um, so that's that's sort of a positive. Um, I would say that, you know, it's it's always re- important as investors to think about what time frame you're operating on. So I just shared there, you know, a short term investor versus a long term investor. And I find a lot of times people are not you know, they think of it just as one thing. The markets are moving a certain way as opposed to thinking about how it is on different time frames. And the markets actually have different characteristics if you look at the data, depending on what sort of time frame you're looking at. So, you know, in the short term, a couple hours, couple days, couple weeks, markets tend to mean revert, meaning they'll, you know, they'll go swing higher, swing lower, and they, they fluctuate back and forth and they, they sort of have these price swings. Um, but on a longer term basis, maybe three, six, 12 months, Things tend to follow trends. Things more, are more persistent, meaning you're better off buying what's been working, buying strength and expecting that to continue and and underweighting or selling things that have been weaker. So um, there's a lot of times that I found working with investors where their toolkit does not line up with the time frame that they're really trying uh, to operate on. And so that's one of the first things I, I do when I when I. Uh, coach investors is is to start with you know how are you, what are you actually trying to do you know let's really articulate what your goal is as an investor and then this mixture your toolkit is actually in line with that and and if if more investors do that I think they would feel just have a lot more peace of mind in terms of understanding what the markets actually do on those time frames. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense and thank you for that. Um, it's it's an interesting I, I find it to be an interesting conversation this whole active versus passive. Uh, but with that idea in mind of coaching an individual, what what are your goals? What is your time horizon? You're not necessarily trying to be at the S&P 500. You're just trying to reach your goals. That being said, when the ordinary folks, the ordinary average investors out there read the headlines that say that active funds have not outperformed indexes over the past 10 years or whatever it's been, what is your response to that? 
Yeah, really, really good point. And you've seen so much more data, you know, actual hard data showing you, you know, how active managers have done as a, as a group uh, versus passive products. So, um, you know, it's funny. I, so I have a lot of thoughts on this. Uh, you know, number one, remember that, you know, when we say active versus passive and, and try to group, you know, essentially what we're doing is grouping all active managers as one big group of people right. and then all passive products as one big group. And as you probably know, that's that's overly simplistic in a lot of ways, right? Because active management can, can take a lot of different forms and passive products actually can take a lot of different forms as well. So if you think about you know, 30, 40 years ago, there wasn't really passive. There was, but it not any, in a, you know, in any sort of ETFs or the, 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 the products that we have now, but there are ways to just get more general market exposure and active management actually looked very different as well. And I would say they were actually very closely related. So as an active manager, you could essentially run more of a benchmark fund and, and not have that, that wouldn't be much of a problem. And what I mean by that is you really didn't have to diversify away from the benchmark or what they call active share. If you, if you, if you look at the, the data on an active manager, it's, it's, it's what percent of their fund is, is managed actively or managed away from their benchmark. And, and, and overall, you know, if, if that is, uh, you know, if, if people are essentially running a benchmark fund, if they're running very close to the benchmark, that's not really much active management, right? It's sort of a passive product anyways. What's happening now is, Passive products are truly passive. There's a fund that you, you know, an, an exchange traded fund that will track these 500 or so stocks and that's it. And it's not doing anything crazy. But they're also smart beta sort of active passive products, which are, you know, taking some sort of consistent statistical bet away from the benchmark. So that's on that side. On active managing, on the active management side, I would say that there are opportunities now for active managers to truly run active products. And if you think about it, what that means for an individual is that, um, you know, I would say that there's a place for for both as you're thinking of, of how you're exposed to the market environment. There's certainly a place for a passive product where you're getting exposure to the broad market environment, to the economy and so forth and, and global themes. Um, but also, uh, you know, having a portion of what you're of what you're investing in a truly active product, not just running the same thing you're, you're doing as your passive investment, but really doing something that's more concentrated, that is truly taking active bets. Um, there's an opportunity then for, you know, for for potential upside there. And I would say that the reason why that should or, or could work is, again, if we group all of active managers as one big group, I would I would argue that that makes sense that the performance should be relatively meager because there are some very efficient, very good active managers, and there are also some very average active managers. So sure. if you group them together, the, the net's going to be a pretty average number. But there are people out there that are able to uh, generate consistent outperformance. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of time, you know, and, I, and again, I work with people across the the professional spectrum all the way up to money managers running, you know, large, large amounts of, uh, of capital. And I would say that for them, we work on how to really make what they're doing an active, uh, you know, product and really think about, you know, the way that they can differentiate their process and, and hopefully get good performances by looking at the toolkit that they're using. And, and for us, a lot of times it's the behavioral uh, toolkit that uh, that we tend to underutilize, which is just trying to get out of the way of our of our bad decision making. So so I think there's there's opportunity there. And again, I would I would hesitate to generalize too much, even though I, I know if you look at the data, that's sort of what. What you'll see, I think there are there are places to be uh, along that spectrum for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's uh, perhaps it's our desire, perhaps it's our brain's desire for a yes or a no binary decision, good or bad, <laughs> right. good or bad. Right. <laughs> so where where do you think that those opportunities are? Is it in small cap value, or is that also being too simplistic? 
No, I, I think that I think that's one way to think about it, right? So in general, you know, if you know, if I think about if I'm an analyst, if I'm a professional analyst, and I look at, um, you know, Facebook, um, you know, my the the potential for me to uncover a new, you know, unique theme or opportunity in Facebook that hasn't already been thought of and covered by one of the other thousands and thousands of people doing so, I would say highly unlikely. So right. my best bet is to just get a general idea of what what's going to happen to Facebook. And I, I don't think I can out, you know, out dig or out find uh, other, you know, fundamentally oriented investors because it, it's pretty widely followed. So the way that you still have an advantage is go where people aren't. And so that would be smaller companies that would be outside of the U.S., emerging markets, frontier markets. So the less efficient, the less transparent, the less liquid than a market is, that is more of a Petri dish for behavioral inconsistencies, behavioral biases to come to fruition. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, and, and I'll, I'll share an example. When a market is very liquid, even if investors are irrational, they actually net out to a very rational decision. And the way that I'll illustrate it, it it's, it's not a perfect example, but it's a pretty good one. I, I used to teach at Brandeis University outside of Boston. I, I taught second year master's students. And when we would talk about uh, you know, behavioral finance and technical analysis, one of the things we would we would do is I would ask them at the beginning of the semester to guess where the S&P 500 would be at the uh, at the end of the of the semester before the last class. And this was not to teach you that, hey, you can use a crystal ball and guess where things are. But it was more just to illustrate. All right. Based on what you see now for the next, you know, 10 weeks or so, where do you think the market's going to be? And the one semester in particular we did this, the range from the highest guess to the lowest guess was about a 65% range. Wow. So I had someone saying we're going up 40 odd percent. I had another student say we're going down 20 some percent and then a bunch of people all around the middle. So as a group, we were all over the place, right? Sure. But what was hilarious was at the end, the market ended within half a percent of the, uh, of the mean of hmm. all of those responses. So individually, you had people that were all over the place, and that represents the irrational decisions you might make. But as a market, it actually nets out to a pretty rational decision. Overall, as a group, we were able to decide where the market was probably going to be. Um, so that's what happened. So in a very liquid market like the United States, even though individuals are, are acting irrationally, and, and I work with in, you know, with investors here to try to minimize the, you know, that irrational behavior, but, but it happens. But in more illiquid markets, you don't have as many participants, you don't have as much transparency. Uh, and so there are opportunities for a lot more, um, you know, in, irrational movements in the markets. And that's where, that's where opportunities can be found. So, so as you mentioned, yeah, small cap value, looking for opportunities that are that are truly uncovered and and uh, and you know and finding needles in haystacks as as it were I think is where the opportunities are and more and more emerging markets in many ways like China India are becoming more emerged markets like they're really becoming more widely followed right. so you know if you look down into frontier markets like developing Asia um, you know Middle East that's where they're you know it's it's still more of a true emerging market that has you know that has opportunities excellent thank you well David Savage Nation is ready for your difference making tip what do you have for them. Yeah, really good. I, I appreciate this, George, and, and, it, and it's something I thought about a lot. How do you how do you come up with one one item that I hope <laughs> resonates with people? There's a lot of pressure. Um, but, but what I would say is 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 think about your process and give more structure, more discipline to your process. And and the way that I would my, my tip along those lines is to have a good morning coffee routine. And what I mean is when you first you know you have your breakfast, you get your cup of coffee, you sit down in front of whatever screen you fire up to begin your investment process, begin your day um, as an investor, what do you start with? 
And what I find is a lot of people start with the wrong things. And examples of wrong things to start with would be um, financial media, like a financial television, um, you know, looking at market performance, looking at intraday movements, like is the S&P or the Dow up or down today by what? Um, looking at your own investments and starting there. And the reason why is all of those things I just mentioned will prime you to think way too short term about things. If you fire up financial television, the whole screen will be green or red based <laughs> on what's happening. And then all of a sudden you, you've already ruined your ability to have an emotionless process. Right. So I would say if you're a long term investor, the first things you should look at are long term oriented things. Start with, you know, looking at long term trends in the markets, reviewing your long term strategy getting a sense, priming yourself for where you were trying to operate. And then those things that we talked about, financial media and your your portfolio and intraday market movements should be more toward the end of the process. That's when you see if your long-term plan is still should be in place based on what you're seeing in the short term. So so my, my tip again is to be thoughtful about your morning coffee routine and and think about the order in which you uh, you approach financial information first thing of the day. Well, I think that is great stuff. That definitely gets it. Come on. Come on. And I always appreciate it when people are thoughtful and, and take time to think about that answer. And you obviously did, sir. So, so, so thank you for that. <laughs> Cheers, George. Happy Dave, to do it. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Yeah, thanks, George. And, and again, it's such a pleasure to be on here. I, I, I really have enjoyed listening to your show and, and I wish you the best for sure. Happy to, happy to be a part of it. Um, you can find me. I write a blog called Market Misbehavior. So if you look at marketmisbehavior.com, you'll find sort of my thoughts over time about relating behavioral psychology to investing and uh, and just all the different ways we can we can think about bringing more discipline into our process. Uh, and then, as, a, as you also mentioned in the intro, I write a, a blog on stockcharts.com called The Mindful Investor. Think about mindfulness uh, routines and, and, uh, and meditative practices and how that can bring a sense of calm to your investment process. So look forward to engaging to your list, with your listeners uh, as well. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show David your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to marketmisbehavior.com. And also check out the Mindful Investor at StockCharts.com. Thank you again, David. Cheers, George. Thank you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step by step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing. Leave us a review. And definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on.